0: Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Mother-Daughter Team, Dr. Gloria, and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation, with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our
1: topic today is Real Men Do Cry, and our guest is Eric Hippel. Eric Kippel was quarterback for the Detroit Lions from 1980 to 1989 when he lost his 15-year-old son, Jeff, to a self-inflicted gunshot wound in 2000. On the show, Eric shares with us how his professional life and his training as a supreme athlete have both helped him and hindered him in dealing with the death of his son. Eric has gone on to help others recognize risk for suicide and to deal with the aftermath of the event. Eric serves on the National Advisory Board of the University of Michigan's Depression Center and has become a presenter on depression and suicide prevention at middle schools, high schools, and colleges throughout Michigan. Eric has always been an inspiration to others, both on and off the playing field. Welcome to the show, Eric.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Gloria.
1: Thanks. It's great to have you
2: on. Um, Before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about Jeff and about your journey?
0: <clears throat> yeah um you know as as I look back, of course now you know most of the thoughts I have are all good thoughts and um very positive thoughts um so, in fact, I was going through uh, for a, uh, another project that I ever asked to come up with some b roll where so I was going through like four and a half hours of worth of tape of of uh, old home movies
3: oh, over the huh, weekend and
0: um yeah and and just watching you know the kids grow up and stuff and seeing. You know, there's still a little tug of the heartstrings that you know that he I didn't seem beyond. But going back and watching, you know, the the funness of of him enjoying him, you know, when he was younger, and then um, and then of course the, of the Flash to when he was older and started having the difficulty, and and then that's where kind of the warm part. You know, it's kind of still a little bit, still painful, and I think it always will be. You know, mm-hmm. but um, the good certainly outweighs the um, that that, that tinge at the heart a little bit you know when you when you think that his life uh, no longer will go forward,
2: yeah, only fifteen years um how many children do you have?
0: I have four total um uh-huh. and the the rest are girls. He was uh-huh. my only son, uh-huh.
2: Yeah, the but same it, with uh, us yeah yeah, yeah. uh, what did he fit in the family
0: um he fit uh, second to the uh, second to the oldest, so he's number two,
2: uh-huh, yeah. your second son, yeah yeah. Well, Eric, um now could you tell us a little bit about he was uh 4 when you quit playing ball, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, he doesn't doesn't remember much about me playing except for the fact that um um from 95 to 2000, I was uh, working with Fox pre-game show. So, you uh-huh. know, that's you know if you know from his ages from from what 11 to 15, um mm-hmm. so he was involved in that side of it, so he could still see the you know the involvement in the football and everything else that was going on and and um so he got, you know, some of that aspir, some of that stuff where you got to go in the studios and see the stuff as happening, and so.
1: I would hard. imagine he loved that. That would be a boy's dream, wouldn't it, to have a father that was doing that?
0: Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know how it. How you you know, he was great at basketball. That, basketball was his sport, not football, which was, oh, okay. <laughs> which was interesting. He was better built for basketball. Loved basketball, and um, mm-hmm. so he was more of the basketball uh, player than. In fact, he was, you know, captain of his freshman basketball team. Right. Um, so.
2: Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit about. Did you know that? Did you have some idea that he was uh, feeling
0: depressed or? Well, that's one thing that's it's real difficult looking back on, and, and I used to beat myself up really bad about it because I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, if you don't, I I, I I I compare this like this way. If, if you'll give me the the time to explain it, but you can only. You know this is how I dealt with the guilt. You can only deal with what you the information that you have at the time right and it's like blaming a surgeon back in the civil war days where you know when they used to amputate legs and not wash their hands and go to another person most you know had more people die from the operations from bacteria and infection than they did actual from the gunshot wounds you know so you would look at that nowadays and say, "How could somebody operate and not wash their hands? I mean, yeah. what, what were they thinking?" But you know what? That's all the, the information they had. Well, and, right. it's like and it's... so you look back. And I look back on um, when Jeff was experiencing his symptoms and what he was going through. You know, I only had the information I had to deal with and going through with that, and so yeah, it took him to the you know to the general practitioner several times, and because he had like aches and didn't feel well. And but that's the only way he could explain it. It was he didn't feel good. He didn't mm-hmm. feel well. And
2: Now, did he take his life with a a gunshot then?
0: Yes, yeah. Yes, he did, Uh
2: Do you have, I know some of the guys um, who hunt or some people who are policemen that I've talked to, whose kids have taken their life with their guns feel very guilty about that.
0: Yeah, that's part of it. But, you know, in in the same token, he was uh, well-versed in how to use a gun because we would go skeet shooting and... uh, and so he had um, he gone through uh, gun management. In other words, they're, they're trained on how to use them. And, right. And so he had his, his certificate and stuff like that. So. so
2: you'd say to those guys out there, look, what?
0: Yeah. I the mean, ones they, whose
2: kids have, have shot themselves. What would you say to them?
0: Uh, I would say, first of all, protect the gun very well. I mean, and even at the best protection. Yeah, they all feel great, that
2: way. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah. It,
0: even well, the best I protection. Think, I, think, so. I think the stats run that if um, – those that die by a gunshot wound, is, it's ninety percent of the guns are already inside the house. Only people, only ten percent of the people actually have gone out and bought a gun, you know, to take their life. Yeah. It's like ninety percent of them are done. And a lot of times, you know, you've got that that impulsivity uh, phase that you know that's um, in the immediate that a gun. There's no going back after a gunshot wound. You know, right. if somebody overdoses or something like that, or. You know, you got some time. Teenagers
1: Teenagers are impulsive and they can do impulsive things in the spur of the moment. Was there something in his life, like a breakup, or that you think triggered this, or was it just a lot of things?
0: I I think it was an overall uh, degradation over a period of time. um, Mm -hmm. Because the previous year, around springtime, he'd start feeling not well and started not wanting to go to school. And then the the year um, that he died, same thing happened to him, except it was a little more severe. Um, you know, and it seemed like it's just going through blues or something like that that's yeah. happening to him. But it was around springtime, and um, one thing that you know that's a lot of people don't realize is that the, one of the highest suicide rates is you know the first week of May.
3: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, which is well, well that's weird because it's springtime. You right, think, well, oh, well, there's like a, you're, you're, right. I mean, if it's the wintertime, time, spring is okay, but. I don't. I don't know why it is, but well, that, isn't it a, because
1: people are feeling better and they're feel, feeling like they have the energy to do it now? That well,
0: that could be, um, or maybe life should be better. Well, yeah. tell
1: us.
2: Um, you've talked a little bit about the taboos uh, connected around suicide. Can you talk a little bit about that for our audience?
0: The taboos that are that surround it, the surrounded um, the some of suicide, the suicide. Uh, whether the people talk
2: about it or not.
0: Well, yeah. One of the, I think one of the myths that you don't talk about it because you're afraid to put it in somebody's mind,
3: mm-hmm.
0: is uh, certainly a myth. Um, the fact is usually that um, if you are able, you know, to come to an understanding that that is what the person is thinking about, that there actually is a, um, a trust that's built up and they understand, and the anxiety is lessened. Um, they're more apt to, get to seek help and uh, to look for support.
2: Okay, but how about people talking to you about it after uh, Jeff took his own life? Um, Were people willing to talk to you that's about one it? One, That
0: was one of the most difficult things because it is a hush-hush deal. Mm-hmm. If there's an accident, mm-hmm. for example, when somebody loses their life either through, uh, say tra- you know, any type of loss is tragic when it's sudden. I don't right. care what kind of it is. You know, um, the, the only difference is if you're at the... Uh, Viewing or the funeral, and people come up and say, So what happened mm-hmm. and um that somebody who lost her son or daughter to a you know to a, a tragic traffic accident accident, for example will say, Oh, they lost control of the car you know they 'll describe it.
3: Mm-hmm. not
0: many people come up and say, So what happened? Mm-hmm. in fact, people don 't know what to say, and um the best thing that anybody can say is just give their condolences and um you know, in a in a hug or a, a deal like that, because I think that quiet understanding. I'm here for you. You know, whatever you need to know. You know, I think that's that's great. But how a lot of times, you, people are afraid to even associate with it because they don't understand it.
2: How did you feel about people who said, "How did he die?" And then you said he uh, he with a gunshot wound, and then they said, "Well, tell me about it." Did anybody do that? How would you have felt?
0: Um, those that are immediately um, associated that I that I knew personally knew how he died. Um, those that, um, that read about it or came or, you know, afterwards that didn't know exactly the circumstance behind it, I felt compelled to explain to them, you know, this is what was going on in his life. I tried to, you know, explain to them that, you know, uh, this is what was going on, you know, and this is a serious thing. You know, for the last three, four weeks, he was complaining of, you know, headaches and stomach aches, not feeling well. His grades had dropped, and you know, so I found myself explaining the symptoms of depression to him, you know, over and over again.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, as a, as a prelude to, um, to the thought, so they would understand that it wasn't something just an impulsive act that um, uh, was done. I mean, this was this was this was a plan that was enacted out.
1: So you <laughs> felt the need to educate people, which I love that you felt that need and let people know this is depression and this is what it looks like, and these are. Somatic complaints are part of depression,
0: right? Especially in teen, especially in teenagers in, in and agitation, teenagers. withdrawal, and all the stuff that went into sleep problems and all the stuff that went along with it. You know, and like I said, if you can go back and paint that picture, then it's then mm-hmm. it kind of is understood. You know, oh. The, you know,
2: what, one thing we talked about a little bit is that sometimes men don't talk about loss as much as women do. They t- tend to have more of a society. Did you feel that way? Or because, you know, I'm wondering, because you were a football player, if there was some kind of a team mentality that you had anyway. You know, do do, do you think you talk more than other guys did?
0: You know, I don't know, because at the early beginnings I felt compelled to talk, you know, to try and explain. Um, like I said, because you want to... You still want to celebrate his life, right. and it's really hard to do when people aren't asking about his life because they're afraid because of the way he died and so i I kind of wanted to explain that away, so people understood no this you know this is why this is why this happened
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: it's like somebody diving from an illness, this is what happened you know like you, somebody dies from cancer this is this is you know they get sick first, and they the prelude up to it and, and but uh, I do
1: think you're unusual that like my mom said that you were willing and able and wanted to be so verbal and vocal, and I think it's so important i mean. They just had something on Newsweek magazine this this week. The cover is about men and depression, and yeah. how they don't talk about it enough.
2: I wanted to ask you one thing about men and depression, but also, Eric. Now, uh, were you married to Jeff's mom at the mm-hmm. time?
0: No, I was not. In fact, um, I had been remarried for fourteen years at the time. Um, um...
2: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that for our audience out there. For the guys who are remarried, were there any issues that came in around that? And did Jeff live with you or with his mom?
0: Actually, and that's one of the things that's, um, when you talk about depression, that's one of the issues that's really, you know, that I, one thing I did not know about was, you know, the stress factor that's, you know, that enacts on the, you know, on the biological side of, um, you know, somebody who might be predisposed uh, to depression, Mm -hmm. which it runs in, in my family and also happens to run in my, uh ex-wife family but um no we were um we were divorced uh back in 90 and um so he lived with his mom in utah and then um but would come out so he was with me for a year then went back with her for a year then came back out with me for a year and and it's really fun. It's strange is the fact that we had a great relationship and still do and um you mean with your ex-wife with my ex-wife yeah mm-hmm. and 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 uh and so there was never any fighting or anything about the, over. The, in fact, my daughter explained it. My oldest daughter explained it to because both Jeff and her uh, were from uh, from Jan. Where um, they explained it this way, they said, "No matter what we did, we were homesick because when we lived with you, we loved living with you. but we missed mom, when we lived with mom, we loved living with her, but we missed you." And so, and, and so this idea of having this this great you know um, compatibility and you know. It still, it's still still very disruptive, you know, for kids. Mm-hmm. And,
2: now, what about guilt connected with that? Do you, for it, the guys I, out there that are having this, do you feel some of the? Did you feel some of that?
0: Certainly, yeah, and um, it'd be, yeah, I do, and uh, there's no getting around it. Um, you know, that'll always be a little bit there because, um, you know, in his growing up, you know, I think what was he? Uh, you know, when we divorced He was at a young age,
2: probably like one, right?
0: Um. Uh, it's three, I think. Not three. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, and uh, so great. So and, you know, the summers you spend all the summer times with me, and then you know, go back out, and, and then all the Christmas time, summer time. So I mean, we never had an issue with you know bad mouthing each other or anything else. And they were never in a tug of war, and um, so that was—I mean, that was—you would think that that'd be the best situation you could ever have. And, and the
1: thing about it is, Eric, and you did bring up the point that. Genetics plays a big role in this, and the reality is 50% of all marriages end in divorce and 50% of all teens are not killing themselves.
3: Right. So, I
1: mean, you know, it's easy for people to be armchair quarterbacks, and I know you like that term because you were a quarterback, and say, well, you could have, should have, would have done this and this and that, but the reality is you did what you thought you were doing and you raised them in a good home with two loving parents in two different houses, and this happened.
0: Right, and I, and I think that's one thing that pe- people don't understand is the uh, is the fact that you know these major stress issues, you know, th- they can act on the, uh, in the on the you know the genetic predisposition, and that's something that we know about depression is the fact that you know stress factors is what kind of stimulates it, and one of the major onsets of depression is age fifteen and nineteen. And so, yeah. But
2: how, what about you, Eric, for yeah. our audience out there? How, you said you've got some depression in your family. How did you deal with that after Jeff died?
0: Actually, that's what that's what got me in the mode that I'm in right now um, was to go back and finally get some education, understand what's what's went on. I finally asked my mother what was wrong with my aunt Joanne when mm-hmm. she was. I found out, you know, um, at age 16, my aunt Joanne was institutionalized with uh, with uh, schizophrenia at the time. We knew something was wrong, but nobody ever talked about it at all. So you
2: went back and did some family talking.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I went back and, and tried to recreate what would happen to me and some of the feelings I had, and, and when I found out about the, what depression was, and started looking at all the uh, the things, I went back in my own history. Oh so my like, gosh!
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I could paint, you know, you know, the crying spells at nighttime and and uh, having trouble sleeping, some of the procrastination stuff until it got to a crisis moment, and then you handled it. Then, you know, all those things that uh, you know, all of those mood feelings that I had. That I realized, oh my gosh, you know, it runs in our family. So how
1: did yeah, you take of care same, of yourself? Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, I was honey. Say, you had some of the same things as Jeff. It sounded like.
0: Yeah, and that's when, the, and that's when trouble. One of the, the problems is, you know, if you're if you're if you've had it and you've gone through and you've lived with it, it's harder to recognize unless you unless you've already discovered it and have gotten treatment for it. Then you can recognize it. Uh, otherwise, you're saying, well, I was like that when I was young, you know. So that's normal.
1: Yeah, you might uh, think it's normal if you've yeah. been, you know. Well, Eric, one
2: of the things I'm interested in that we're hearing here is some of the things like sleep problems and um, those kind of problems are normal grieving. So do you have any thoughts on how, if a guy has had a child die, how they might know if it's normal or not, or what did you do? Do you have any thoughts for them?
0: Well, uh, I'd say first of all that anybody that does have a death, especially a a, a quick tragic one, any death is is bad enough, but a quick tragic one is, is, is slams and just... It halts everything that, you know, there's no time to prepare for anything else, and, and all of a sudden that just takes over. And then trying to deal with normal functioning um, in that grief process is very difficult. And in fact, a um, uh, clinician won't even try and do a diagnosis with somebody who's grieving without, you know, for the first year. Some of them won't. Yes, well, that's true. <laughs> a good <Okay>. one, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it, hopefully it, 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 yeah, hopefully they won't. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Because there's a lot of the things that go along with the, the down feelings and the sleep uh, and the crying spell and uh, all that stuff and, and agitation and not feeling and I'm feeling out of sorts. All those are part of grieving. And they're
1: part of a guy's grieving. Angry? Yeah,
0: and how, how very, about being angry? Being angry is huge. So, yeah, uh, were
1: you angry at Jeff?
0: No, that's one thing I never did. In fact, I, okay. under, I under the moment I got the phone call. I, I, I in a weird way, I understood it, and mm-hmm. maybe it's because of what I was dealing with. And then, um, when I got angry, was when I found out. Um, I was first of all, I, I, I became very destructive,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and um, you know, I really didn't care about much about living or uh, myself, and. And went through that process for a while. Talk
2: about like, that a little bit more. What kind of things did you do?
0: Well, you know, impulsive, impulsive things like you know, like when I my driving, I didn't care. You know how I acted. Um, I started uh, self medicating you know, pretty heavily and just you know, kind of put things. Were aside. you drinking or drugs? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh-huh. about anything else to, to get my mind somewhere else. And, right. Uh, but I ended up ended up getting uh, pulled over um, for a um, for a DUI, and then. Um, with that, the programs they had available to go to, and everything else you know to stay out of um trouble and i didn 't care you know i didn 't go to go to them i didn 't you know i just so about every chance a judge gave me um you know I kind of just didn 't really care, and so I ended up doing fifty eight days in jail
1: wow,
0: and that fifty eight days was um spent a lot of time uh sleeping and thinking and reading, so between you know, those three things um you know, I think about halfway through I decided, well, I can leave this and do what I'm doing or I can take my life or I can fix and find out what's going on. And mm-hmm. that was the third choice I decided to take was, you know, let me research this, let me understand it, let me get my hands around it.
2: What kind and, of stuff were you reading?
0: Um, about actually anything I could get my hands on just to get my mind away from anything. And and I would end up trying to read I'd read myself asleep, and it's including the Bible, it's including, you know, Newsweek Time, anything else, any book, uh, any novel, anything else that was there, trying to get my mind away from everything else that was there, just trying to focus on something else than and my thoughts, and, and I found that you can't run away from your thoughts, you know. Was so,
2: religion helpful for you?
0: Um, it, yeah, I've, I've always been um, pretty religious in my, uh, in my life, and so um, it w- was helpful. Um, trying to get redirected was uh, helpful. Um, I mm-hmm. think everybody has to have some sort of a purpose in life, and um, I kind of had lost mine. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I have a you know family left over that I could either walk away from or pull things together and 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 survive it. Huh.
1: So it was in jail that you decided, look, I'm gonna pull myself together and try to figure out what's going on with me.
0: Yeah, yep. And um, and when I did come out. Um, it, I want
1: to ask you one thing. Did you have
2: any counseling while you were in jail?
0: Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Was but that I, helpful? But I had counseling beforehand, too. One of the greatest things that I did that really helped me that I refocused back in on um, was uh, some of the grief counseling that uh, that I received uh, right after Jeff died. And... Um, so, so that, you went
2: back to it, even though it didn't yeah, help I, you. I, I, I mean, at the time, yeah. you still you did this wild behavior was, and all that, even yeah. though you had the information. I, I
0: went through like the phase I first went through was okay, dealing with getting along on a daily basis, and um, and that means being able to function during the daytime, in a in a somewhat normal fashion, and learning there's a time to grieve, and um, I did so with the use of a uh, a tool like a candle that used to set up and. Uh, and light in the evening time and that would be the time that I'd grieve and so oh, I love that trying to displace the grieving time so I know I'd have that time to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. So I
0: could function during the daytime. Otherwise that
1: limits every, on your grief, which is yeah, great.
0: Yeah. Otherwise every little trigger that hits you, you find yourself crying in the middle of the day, you know, whatever you're doing, all of a sudden just tears start flowing, you know, it's mm-hmm. just you know, every little thing that hits you and your life has kind of come to an end and and so you have to refocus and get that energy back and know when you can grieve and and uh, it, so it was a, that was a process that I kinda let get away from me. And then, so I went back to that.
1: Did any of your training as a professional athlete help you with your grief process?
3: Yeah, I.
0: You know what? I don't. The only thing I think that that I that really helped me out more than anything um, from my athletic uh, career. Was the fact of getting knocked down and getting back up again?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, yeah. um, you know, every the next play is going to come at you no matter what. So get back up. You know? What
2: about expecting the team to help you? and the, the support team. Or could you pull that in at all?
0: Um, you, uh, yeah, um, the fact that um, you know, um, metaphorical sort of speaking terms that. Yes, you know you're not going to be successful unless you bring people together, okay, and understand that you need a team to work with because you can't do this alone. You can't do it alone on the field, and you can't do it alone uh, by your by yourself in this the arena that you're certainly in. In life, you know you need people around, and so yes, that that was a part of it. And I just sometimes you forget that you have a team, and you know, and you're and you're trying to do things by yourself.
2: Do you think that there's any uh, feeling that maybe you want to punish yourself a bit too? You you know, like your behaviors, but also rejecting other people or not letting them help or not letting them in? Was there any of that for you?
0: Um, I, I don't know that, um, that other than the fact that I was just very angry at um, the fact that this knowledge was out there that I didn't know about, mm-hmm. and that nobody had talked, you know, about it, and, you know, the fact that we might have been able to save Jeff you know, if I would have known this stuff before.
1: And the fact that maybe if you brought them to doctors and somebody had said when they were examining them, you know what, this is a serious depression, we need to get some serious help here.
0: True, but I realize this, that um, if you and if you don't know what to say to a doctor, mm-hmm. there's very difficult for them to be able to, uh, in their short period of time, be able to diagnose you. Okay. Um, so, and I, I use that to a degree of, trying to explain the symptoms, the reason why we need to use, uh, you know, you need to learn as much as you can. So when you go to, in front of a professional, you need to say, these are the things that are happening to me, just just like you would if, you know, if you had a strep throat, for example. Okay, my throat hurts really bad. Um, so they know where to look. So if I go and I said, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well, I know I've, I'm anxious all the time, you know, I can't concentrate. And you start listing these things, they'll say, aha, they don't know where to direct you, but if you just go in and say, "I don't feel good," what are they? What are they supposed to do? You know, and so I, I don't blame the doctors for Jeff's case. Mm-hmm. Um, I blame it more on on the lack of education from not knowing. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, you go back to the Civil War doctors, and you know, they don't blame themselves. Obviously, I'm sure if they're living nowadays, they'd say, "Oh my gosh, so many people I killed." By God.
1: well, and it's, and it's people know. like you and you going out and doing outreach and educating the world. that will hopefully prevent somebody else. Some other child from taking their life.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and, and that's and that's the hope and that's the goal and that's what I'm doing. when I'm doing. And that
1: for. also gives you purpose, doesn't it, for
2: just life?
0: Yes, it does, and uh, and I think you know, and you know, sometimes in the, in the bigger scheme of things, maybe that's what had to be done, not only to save uh, other lives, but maybe to save mine as well. And um, so I kind of look at it that way. But you know, the um, it doesn't get past the point, the fact that you know, you you lose somebody. In fact. Um, you know, we're, we're, as we're talking about this grieving process, it just, it really hit home about a week ago. I had a, a, a you know, in fact, it was on the radio we had a, um, our county commissioner, uh, Oakland County Commissioner, had, uh his son is, was killed in a uh, tragic accident, mm-hmm. um, snowmobiling accident. And, um, and so that came back to hit home because, you know, there's a friend of mine that's going through something that I went through and just monitoring what's going on in his situation, the same thing, you know, he's, daytime and you know uh tears will be coming and trying to fight off me you trying to you got a, a huge job responsible for all these people and yet how do you take care of yourself and do it and i liked what i heard you guys talking about yourself uh gloria when you're talking about yourself
3: mm-hmm.
0: take care of yourself i love that because even on even i, I think of the uh Symbolism on an airplane, when they pull down the mask and say, make sure you take care of yourself before you can take care of anybody else.
3: Ah, oh, that's good.
0: And uh, I love that symbolism because I think, you know, that's that's it. Um, mm-hmm. You got you can't take care of your family. You can't take care of anything unless you take care of yourself first. Once you're healthy and healing, then you can take care of everybody else.
3: Okay?
2: Mm-hmm. And then you
0: can take that burden on and make sure you're taking care of yourself as you're doing it. Otherwise, you don't do anybody any, any good. In fact, you can, you can actually do more harm.
2: Right. Now, Eric, um, when you went to jail, how long had it been since uh, Jeff had died?
0: It was, um, I'm trying to think of the actual time frame. I think it was within a year. It was okay. within a yeah. year.
2: And then, because that's one of the points I want to make to guys. I mean, we don't expect you to have this amazing turnaround after you listen to the show, right? You know, I know we've got football fans out there that uh, have watched, watched you play from, what was it, 80,
3: 80, 80 to 89. 80 to 89. 80, to 89,
2: 89 yeah. Right. Can you talk a little bit about being a real man? You know what it means. Give us a picture of that, and, and then and then we'll talk about what happens when something happens to a real man. How it how is it out on the field and being a quarterback? You're telling everybody what to do, and, and that's a know. lot of
1: pressure, isn't it?
0: Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's, it's pressure that's um, that you get immediate feedback, <laughs> and that's sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. You know, um, if you're having a good day, it's a great thing, and. Uh, um I was talking to a 15- to 16-year-old uh, uh, group of boys the other day, and one of them asked me, so what's it like, you know, to you know, to get booed? I said, well, it depends if that's during the game or if they're booing you as they're being introduced onto the field.
1: Right. that's <laughs> a know? good point.
0: There's, there's two different things. You know, one is, mm-hmm. eh, you know, it's part of the game, okay. But if you're getting booed while you're walking on the field, you feel a lot of pressure just to complete the first pass, you know. so right. Anyway, but... Um, I think a, a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, in athletics is, you know, the, the macho behind it is the fact that, you know, you're bulletproof. You know, you, can, you, can't, you have to have no fear. Um, you can't be intimidated. Um, so you you got to take your business at hand, and if you get knocked down, you've got to get up again and, um, and keep fighting. And it's done in the time frame, so you know that you've got that 60 minutes worth of fighting time that you're fighting for.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: so you can give it everything you've got in that sixty minutes. I think where that loses translation is when you approach that into real life. It's hard to have that intensity and maintain that through your whole lifespan. And so what happens is, you know, you find yourself, you know, it sounds intense. So um, there's
1: a lot of highs and yeah. and rushes. I would think that you get during those 60 minutes that you that's, probably want to recreate yeah, off that's the playing field.
0: That's the other side of it that I was talking about. You know, when somebody asked me what it's like to be Buddhist, I said, well, what's it like when you get cheered? And I said, well, having 80,000 people, you know, screaming your name mm-hmm. is a really, really cool, neat thing to have happen. And it's um, kind of like a an experience where you just kind of along for the ride and everything's going wrong really, really well. You know, they, they call that in-the-zone feeling. But, um, you know, those are... Very impactful things that have happened to you, and there's, there's, yeah, it's almost impossible to recreate. Um, I would say the only, only power, the, the most powerful feeling I've ever felt that could compare to any emotion like that was, uh, was when Jeff died. You mm-hmm. know, that was a uh, an emotion that I couldn't control. Right. You know, the just oh, I, I still can't even put it into words, but. Uh,
1: now, obviously, you had no problems showing your tears and being emotional, and I was wondering if there was ever any teammates, I know it was a few years later, but that visited you, and when you broke down, they couldn't deal with it because they felt that real men don't cry.
0: Um, I think within the confines of dad, there are certainly some people that said, you know what, they don't understand the whole thing, and they don't. They may understand it at their own level but didn't want to deal with it because they don't want to face it. And um there's also the mentality that, you know, toughen up. You know, hey, you know, suck it up,
2: up. isn't that what they yeah. say? Yeah suck,
0: yeah, suck it up, you know. What I mean? uh, <laughs> Scott
2: I uh Scott was a quarterback it, on the know? football team in high school yeah. and he always talked about sucking it up. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, suck it up, get over it, you know. And um but I think the uh the ones that are really um the actually the real true men I should say that I that I believe in are the ones that did come to the aid and uh were able to sit there with you and uh to put an arm around you, be able to cry with you, be able to understand it, be able to visit you and see how you're doing, and uh, and just let you whatever emotion you have, let it out,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and and you know, and they helped you. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the true man that does that, and um, and there was many of them that um, that came to my aid. We
2: had uh, Bill Hancock on our show. I don't know if you know him. He wrote Writing with the Blue Moth, and he was in charge of the Basketball March Madness. Yeah. And I was surprised uh, when he talked, wow, the the sports world, there are a lot of good guys there that are really able to go, you know, we're there for him. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and I don't know, it's the camaraderie thing that goes along with that, or if it's um, um, you're in it together, and so you can understand it, but... Um, I, I think certainly there are those guys, some, some of them, that don't get it. Mm-hmm. But I think the majority of them that are actually compassionate and, and, and involved do understand. Well,
2: Eric, um, one thing we haven't had too much of a chance to talk about is your family. Um, I want to say, um, Jan, uh, Jeff's mom, um, uh, you're divorced from her and you're married to?
0: I'm Brandon Shelley, and then I have uh, Taylor, um, who's uh, now 15, and Tara, who's now 13.
2: Okay, and then you have an older daughter.
0: Uh, yes, uh, Erica.
2: Erica, mm-hmm. and we—is uh, it Erica that wrote the poem?
0: No, actually, it's my youngest.
2: Oh, your youngest daughter yeah. wrote you a poem. When did she write this?
0: Was, she actually wrote it at age twelve? But um, she was age seven uh, when Jeff died at, mm-hmm. at age fifteen, and so this has stuck with her. And um, and uh, she wrote this poem, like I said, about a year ago. something. I it was it was published in a, in a small area here, and um, was went out in the, on a program. And um, yeah, it's um, it's this is how it carries along, you know, loss, how it's you know how it reverberates. But I'll read this real quick to you. It says, um, "You were here, you were fine. From my mother's heart, from the look in her, my father's eyes, from Erica's warm visit to Taylor's sparkle in her eyes went blind. From Erica's warm visit to a disastrous moment, you were here, you were fine. How can you do this? What should I do? With me in the other room, to a sore, sharp pain in my jump, I can never describe that painful thump." You were here, you were fine. You were a part of us. I can't describe walking into the dining room, seeing Pastor sitting at one end of the table, Mom sitting at the other. I still can't describe how numb I was when I lowered my head into my mother's arms as the words, he took his own life, went into the deepest of harms. I just want to say that you saved a lot of people's lives. I thank God every day for you being our lives. Even though you are not with us in person, you are still with us in spirit. Just answer one question for me. What should I do? Mm-hmm. And I think that question, "What should I do?" It's really just rings out. And um, like I said, she's you know this is stuck with her. But I think it sticks with everybody's lives. You know, when you've had a tremendous loss, and what should you do? You should take care of yourself. You should reflect back on the positive moments, on how the person lived, not how they died.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, and like I said, take care of yourself. Make sure that you get healthy and help others that you can help them to a position that you're in.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. Heidi, I was wondering, that poem was so moving. Um, as a sibling, what, what came up for you with that?
1: Um, just how profound the loss is. When, I mean, these girls have lost their only brother. I lost my only brother. And our brothers will live on forever in our memories. They, we are who we are today because we knew them and they were part of our lives. And they had a huge impact on us and they always will.
2: Yeah, and, and it's so, it says to me something, Eric. The fact that, um, is it Shelly that wrote it?
0: Um, no, it was Who Tara was it? that wrote it. Oh, Shelley. Tara? <laughs> so Tara, yeah.
2: Uh, the fact that Tara could talk about her brother uh, taking his life by suicide, what, four years, uh, five years later she writes this? Yes. Mm-hmm. That, that to me is really key because that says that you have not kept this a secret in your family. This has been an open thing that people have been able to talk about, which is so freeing for everyone
0: yeah it is and then you know you you're you're, you're <laughs> it's i think people's um minds are starting to uh change a little bit and then accept that type of death as 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 a tragic loss as any other loss is um and um and so yeah and my hope goes out to and my prayers go out to anybody that's ever lost you know um a son or daughter. And I wanted to say,
2: it's um, wonderful that uh, University of Michigan has a fabulous uh, site
3: mm-hmm. for depression. Yes.
2: Very comprehensive. And uh, I would really recommend that people go on to that site. What other things are you doing now, Eric?
0: Um, I, I'm involved with, uh, well, I'm outreach coordinator for University of Michigan uh, Depression Center now. And um, so I moved from the National Advisory Board uh, capacity to actually being on staff. And um, we particular programs. Uh, we're involved in a program right now with... Um, with um the National Football League Players Association and uh identifying depression in men and um helping with that. But um also uh go to a lot of schools, I think forty eight schools last year and thirty different uh, somewhat different community Wow, uh, Well you
2: spoke at forty eight schools? Yeah. Oh. That's sick. And, nice.
0: and then um so that that continues on. Um
2: what if people wanted you to speak at their school, how would they get in touch with you? Um
0: um Depressioncenter.org, center okay. um and that they'll put them into the University of Michigan depression center site and um I'm on their speakers bureau
2: oh great okay mm-hmm. so you you would go around the country and speak on that that's a, that's mm-hmm. fabulous
0: yeah. yeah it's spread out from just michigan um to uh to a wider ranges, and uh, which is which is neat to see um so it's the words getting out
2: yeah uh, now right. you were the kind of our um grand marshal for the compassionate friends um uh program, uh-huh. their conference in Michigan uh, a year ago, and um, I wonder, did you do any Compassionate Friends, or do you know anybody who's gone to those groups?
0: Um, you know what? Um, n- no, I-, I know people that have gone to the groups and and, um, and relate back and forth, um, but as far as my time has been solely really kind of tied up uh, as it is.
1: I want to thank our guest, Eric Hippel.